Welcome to the Idea Land podcast, hosted by Ravi Kamati Reddy. Charles Juni Shane here is an actor and voiceover talent living in Chicago. From broadcasting, dog washing, hosting dolphin shows, teaching American dialects to performers in Australia, house painting, to working on a cruise ship, Charles has found an aspect of each experience to choose the third path. Thanks for having me. If we, if we had to map back our high school paths, probably even from junior high, I would say you took one that is the most opposite. It's a path that I just never even delved into, but for some crazy reason, I want to now. And I just want to hear the story. I mean, I want to hear, you know, just give us, give us some of your background. Tell everyone what, where you're from, where'd you grow up, kind Absolutely. of the basics. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I come from a relatively small family. Uh, there's just the four of us. Started out in the Quad Cities in the late 70s, early 80s. And then through job changes with my father, we ended up moving quite a bit. Uh, we ended up on the East Coast and then we came back to the uh, Midwest. But this time we were in a very small town in central Illinois. And while we were in that small town, I did not fit in. It was a, it was a small town and um, you know, it's, it's a lovely town, great people, but it wasn't, it wasn't for me. And uh, yeah. the things that I, I was interested in and liked and wanted to do with my life just, just really did not fit in. I mean, this town, you've got to drive almost an hour to get to um, the nearest um, shopping mall. Not that that's a paragon of culture or anything, but I mean, as far as like <laughs> anything like, you know, regular live theater, uh, getting things like periodicals, comic books. I mean, sure, the local grocery store had the spinner uh, rack with the comic books that were replaced like maybe once a month, if that. Um, but anyway, it just, I knew that I was kind of made for being in a bigger city, having some more options uh, for things. A couple things happened. One is that I discovered theater and uh, wanted to act and perform and the local community theater was very very influential in that and allowed me to uh, explore that but I also <laughs> I think we just moved there and I was about age 12 and we had a radio station in town and I marched my precocious little ass over to that radio station uh, I think I was either 12 or 14 I think it was probably closer to 12 and I walked up to the to the front desk and I asked for an application. And Are you I serious? filled it out. Oh yeah. I filled it out and uh uh I ended up running it back over there and I can remember Linda, uh she uh she she managed the office at the radio station. Well what would you gotta say the station name now? Okay, well it is no longer it's no longer existing in its original format, but this is uh Light Hits and Soft Favorites, WPOK WJEZ. What yeah, did you had, ask for? Like, what, what did you, just, what, what did you expect was going to happen? Oh, I don't know. I thought I was going to be like, you know, the, the scrappy young cub reporter kid who ends up, you know, like in the, you know, in the movies in the forties, you know, there's the kind of like the I, Jimmy Olsen, you know, at the daily planet, <laughs> you know, I, I thought not that I was into broadcast or, you know, news or anything like that, but I thought, you know, they're going to take me under their wing. They're going to find this scrappy young guy and they're going to, they're going to say, let me show you the, the wonders of broadcasting. Um, oddly enough, something sort of like that happened because uh, a few years later when I was 15, uh, I ended up being called in to do something at the radio station. Now, huh. as I mentioned, it was a good hour's drive to the nearest place of any kind of metropolitan 
uh, description, and that meant that it was an hour plus, about an hour drive to the nearest college, university. And normally radio stations will hire interns as unpaid labor to kind of do all the go-to work. Right. And then in turn get college credits. Well, you can't really do that in a small town like this. So they hired high school students. And they used to stagger it so that each year they would hire a freshman. And so then you had four people who each would, you know, train the younger person. It was this kind of self-perpetuating thing. Well, by the time I was uh, starting in high school, my freshman year, they had three seniors and they were all going to be gone. And so they needed to train somebody and they wanted someone on the younger end. And they said, hey, didn't didn't that Shane here kid, didn't, didn't Tyler and Sue's boy come in here a few years back? <laughs> And so they called me in to, uh, to do what they have. And I don't think anybody who lives in an area that's, um, that isn't small town, particularly Midwest, will understand this. But the, all the local school district closings, you know, you, you, when there's a snow yeah. day, yeah. the local media will, will broadcast that. Well, another thing they did uh, in, in our particularly small area was they would, uh, they would read off in the morning radio program uh, what the lunch was going to be at the, all the, the area public schools. Do you still remember that? You remember that, don't you? Oh, absolutely. And so if you wanted to know whether you should, you know, make a bologna sandwich or have mom pack you something, or you should, you know, go and pay for the hot lunch, you say, oh, it's pizza day. Well, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to have a pizza. <laughs> um, so anyway, what they would do is they would hire radio children, uh, children to come into the radio station, area kids uh, and teens to come in and read the school lunches for the whole County, which, it doesn't sound like much, but you know, there's a, there's a fair number of them. And you're not only just reading the lunches for that day, you're reading the whole week's worth. So you're 15. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're, you're walking into basically what is the biggest broadcast professional setup you've ever seen. Correct. At that point, did anyone ever even train you or teach you how to use it? It said, Hey kid, just get in front of the mic and just read off this thing. Uh, not at first. No, this, I didn't know this at the time, but it was actually my audition. Oh. They, yeah, they said, let's bring in that kid. So they uh, they just, I was contacted. I think it was my English teacher had said, oh, they said they wanted to, remember it's a small town. Uh, they said they wanted you to come in. And so I came in and they recorded and, and uh, Lane. Uh, so Lane Lindstrom, who was the engineer, he owned half the station. He was, he had controlling interest, uh, had a controlling interest in it. He also did DJ work and he could, repair anything he had me come into the studio he turned it was real to real that's how far back we're going wow and he he set it up and he had the microphone and he just said all right now i just want you to read what you see here and before you start just say three two one and then read off the date and say your name and what school you're from and da, 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 da. i said okay fine and so i sat there in this little recording room uh studio by myself and i was reading it and i got I got pretty good at it. I was going at a good clip and I was like, all right, this is, and he told me if you mess up, just stop, go back, say three, two, one, and start again. And we were coming up on the end of October. And I know this because the schools and the, the school lunch, uh, uh, lunch ladies or lunch preparers, they like to get creative around the holidays. <laughs> and, um, I don't know if you've ever watched or heard outtakes on things where people just lose their shit and can't stop laughing. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I wish I could, I wish I had this recording. I so wish I could remember what school it was, but let's just say it was Sonneman. So I was at Sonneman schools 
and the the the, the thing they were had was uh, cheesy weenie critters. Yeah, it's taken me <laughs> twenty plus years to be able to say that without You're, laughing. This this has given you PTSD. Oh uh, my god! For for twenty years, you have PTSD from ready. <laughs> yeah, so I get through it. I'm just like, Sonnenman schools, cheesy and. <laughs> You know, and I'm just dying laughing. And was like, everyone else laughing too in the studio? No, I'm alone. I'm oh, alone. Oh, okay. There was business to be done. There were like four other studios and, you know, the newsman is putting his thing together and, you know, everybody's doing their own thing. Occasionally they walk past the big glass window, you know, and they kind of look in and be like, oh, there's a kid in there. He must be reading the school lunches. And at one point I was just dying laughing and I just, I, I was, I was actually like pounding the desk and like trying to gain my composure. And I was like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I'm looking over and this tape is running out. You know, there is a physical representation of how much time you have. Right. Before there's a problem. And you don't get another tape. This is your audition. Well, it's like, well, I didn't know that. I just wanted to do right. I wanted to do well by them, you know, cause I knew someone had to edit it. I is there a producer enough. looking at you through a window? Is this like a, no, no. is this like Frasier, you know, where there's Roz over sitting there going, well, hey, you know, turn it up or turn it down or slow down. for certain things. But no, Lane just came in. Lane had a lot of work to do. He right. came in. He set up the, can, uh, the microphone. He did the thing. And he gave me a little once over of, you know, how things work and stuff. And he says, but don't touch any of that. It's fine. I've heard you speak. I've looked at your levels on the, on the, meet, on the needle on the meter. Right. Go for it. And he just left me alone. So I'm in there for about, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes. And I get to the cheesy weenie critters bit and I'm just dying laughing. And finally I just, and I turn and I, I just, I know somebody was going to have to listen to this. And I said, I'm so sorry. You have to edit this. I'm going to try again. I'm going to get it this time. And I went through and I did it. And then later, you know, over the next week, I, I heard my lunch readings in the morning, you know, before going to school. And I was like, Oh, that's pretty cool. You know, and they, every kid, they'd have like, they have like, you know, eight year olds, 10 year olds who could read, you know, come in and say, yeah. Dog and ash. They're going to have fried chicken with mashed potato. You know, I mean, so whatever. It was a it was a teenager. Well, I then found out later that they were interested in hiring a high school student and would right. have been interested to come in. And so I did. And uh, I found one of my old pay stubs not too long ago. And uh, I was making four twenty five an hour. That was what minimum wage was. That's in right. Nineteen ninety five. Ninety two. Oh no. 92, 91, 92. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I started working there and I did. Then I, I learned about mic technique. I learned about levels. I learned how to edit. I learned how to do editing with the physical tape because you would have to uh, take, the, take the tape and you would, you would physically maneuver the wheels uh, of the tape, the reel to reel machine. So that, you know, you, you start into a word, so you could cut it right where the, the, you know, where whatever you needed to edit. And so you take the tape physically, you would mark it with a little wax pencil and then you pull it out and you put it in this little trough that had a little diagonal groove in it. And you take a razor blade and you cut it and then you bring the tape over to where you, the other mark you'd made and then you'd cut it and then you'd, you'd tape the, 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 the tape together with like a special type of tape. I just think it's funny because, you know, we, we use all this, uh, uh, these icons on programs these days that really just harken back to those old processes. So if you go to the Final Cut Pro, for example, or no, even forget even recording software. If you go to uh, Microsoft Office, right, and you press the mm -hmm. save button, it's a little diskette. Mm -hmm. And nobody even knows what, I, I wonder if people today even know what that is. And they're like, why oh, is there I, a weird blue square as a save button? And I'm the sure razor blade tool... Who 
it's an actual razor blade that she used Correct. to edit. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that there are people who are old enough to uh, to drink legally who have no clue. Absolutely no clue. I, I can tell you a real uh, side note. When I used to work at the radio, or at the radio, when I worked at a comic book store here in Chicago, uh, I worked with a young man and uh, we, we were talking. He's a musician. He's actually a professional musician. He's in a band called Tanzan and they're doing very well. Um, but I t he was maybe about 15, 16 at the time. And we were talking about noises and old technology. And I mentioned something about a dot, dot matrix printer. Yeah. And you remember those? And there's oh, yeah. The yeah, the paper with like the, the dots on the side where the yeah. little cogs, the wheels would bring it forward. And I told him about the dot matrix printer. And he said, well, that's an odd name. What do you mean? What does it do? And I said, well, it was a printer and it used little hammers and an ink ribbon, almost like a typewriter, but you couldn't use it at night. And he goes, why couldn't you use it at night? I said, well, you couldn't print anything if people were asleep because you'd wake up the whole house. And he said, <laughs> What do you mean? How could that happen? And I said, well, you've got this paper that's taut and you have these little hammers that are going uh, on, you know, little um, servos that are going, you know, yeah. back and forth and it would make this horrible noise. And now as a musician, he's really peaked and he goes, well, what did it sound like? And I said, well, uh, well, it was kind of like it was kind of like, you know, I'm doing the best thing I can. And he was like, oh, I wonder what it really sounds like. And I was like, hey, man, we got the Internet here. So I pull up. Uh, internet and I put in dot matrix printer sound and there's a, a real dot matrix printer and you see the guy get the paper set up and everything and then it starts to print and then they edited out the real sound of the printer oh. and it was a dude's voice going ring <laughs> and he looked at me with his jaw open he goes man it really does sound like that <laughs> What's and funny? I, you know the place on the floor. Well, the place that the, the dot matrix printer, probably the place that if you've ever heard one, if because you know, no, they were so expensive even at the time that you probably didn't own one of the, uh, in your house. It's the DMV, right? It's mm. like that's where you had the dot matrix printer, and that's where yeah. you could. You're like, oh, okay, we're gonna print out your license, your registration, and we'll just go and do that, right? But I have a question though. I, you know, you're doing all these things in the studio at 15, right? You can't yeah. drive yet. Right. No, I had an FCC license before I had a driver's license. I always loved that. So, so you're in a small town. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows what's going on with everybody else. What was for the reaction like? You know, because are you, you know, are you the football dude? Are you, are you, are you doing this and the football jock and the and the quote unquote nerd? You know, or is this, <laughs> or are you like the anomalous? Oh yeah, you know, Charles does this radio thing, and we hear uh, him over the over the uh, announcements on the radio about school lunches. Well, I mean, that was just the first, that was just the start, but yeah, I, I mean, I was, I was kind of an outlier in, in a lot of different ways. I mean, I, I did theater. I didn't just do it like, Oh, it'd be fun to do the, the, the spring play. I was like, no, I do theater. <laughs> I wasn't quite the, you know, the, the, the tortured, you know, uh, theater major, you know, yeah. yet, but uh, yeah, I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life. And, you know, I would go with my parents to the, in the nearest town an hour plus drive away and go to the symphony um you know uh, at least once a month and these were not things that were done um sports absolutely not um i did i did clubs uh, i did i liked organizing things so i you know like spanish club av library club um there was a volunteer thing but no i mean really the thing was yeah charles does the radio and charles does acting those were the things that were kind of i was i was more or less known for what did photography what uh 
what or who inspired you to do that? Was there like a seminal moment, a teacher, something that you saw, something you read that said, this is for me, like this fits? I think, I, I think, uh, I, I, I hadn't given it a whole lot of thought until you approached me about this. And the one name that kind of keeps coming up for a lot of different things, not just what we've talked about so far is Garrison Keeler. Really? Um, yeah. I come from a pretty solid background. I'd say I'm both sides of the family of storytellers. That's interesting. You, you grow up in your own family and you have what you think is normal. You know, you have this idea growing up, you're like, oh, this is this is what is. It just is. And right. then as you get older and you go out into the world, or maybe you don't, but you get older and you recognize other people and families and the way they live, you recognize things that, oh, yeah, I guess this isn't the norm or this is not how other people live or express themselves. Uh, case in point, my grandfather um, was a doctor. He was a radiologist. He was a DO. He used to have his own private practice prior to getting into radiology. And my father worked in medicine, uh, healthcare management. He was an administrator. And so in my family, discussing medical issues, biological functions, right. that's just something you did. And once I got to college and realized, oh, oh, people are not comfortable with that. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Garrison Keillor. I mean, he was a man who was a writer. He did broadcasting. He uh, had a weekly radio program, and he told stories. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, um, A Prairie Home Companion. Uh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course. And for a good 30 years, I think. Uh, That's right. Still yeah, going poor... just under another. Well, I was going to say, poor guy. I, what do you think of all that, just as an aside? About what? About the His whole exit. Do you think he should have just stayed in it and said, you know, this happened. There's ah. sides of this story, but I, you know, I. I built this whole um, infrastructure over the years. I'm going to keep going. Well, I think there's a few things going on there. I can't speak to what actually happened. Yeah. I think it was a, it was certainly, uh, it was a perfect storm of a lot of things happening and a lot of things that needed to happen. Um, as for what actually happened with him, I don't know the specifics. I probably never will. Um, I have tried over the years to, uh, I try to, temper what my my feelings are about a particular artist whatever mm. that may be from um it's tough it's really tough i mean i you brought that up and you know in the video component you know i made one of those faces because <laughs> you know i um it's difficult it really is uh what do i think about it i i think i think that he was certainly at a point in his life where he could have uh stepped away and he'd handed over the reins uh, to um, to someone else for the for the program at least the the weekly live broadcast. He's still doing broadcasting uh, in his own way. It was taken off of National Public Radio, but he still has the right. uh, the Writer's Almanac, uh, which is now a podcast, and I believe it can be or maybe picked up by some radio stations. I don't know if anybody picked it back up. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough for, situation. I you know, I mean, my heroes have always been kind of. You know, it's funny. I had a conversation with somebody a few weeks ago where they were talking about meeting celebrities. And I said, you know, honest to God, I, I used to work at the uh, Shedd Aquarium here in Chicago. That's right. And uh, one of my job, my job there was to uh, host the shows with the dolphins and whales. So I'd get up there and you know, no way. present the animals. I had nothing to do with their training. I was just up there as, you know, a mouth box, mouthpiece, whatever. 
but it was it was a great job. I loved it. I love the people. I love the organization. And occasionally you'd have celebrities would come in. And uh, if I can't think of any off offhand, but you know, I was talking with a friend. I said, you know, if Tom Cruise came in, I would not go out of my way to go see him. Not because of anything I don't feel like I, I like like I don't like the person. It just he doesn't excite me. It's like yeah, he's a big movie star. He does great big movies, but um, when John Rise Davies, the character actor, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, came yeah. in, like I had somebody cover my shift, and I kind of did a little covert, like oh there he is. There did he you is. talk I'm to like, him? No, <laughs> that's the thing. <laughs> I will rarely ever speak to a celebrity. There are a few times I have, uh, but I mean like. I, Unless I have anything that I want to say to them or to relate, which, what are the odds of that? Then I'm just kind of, you know, I give them, I give them wide berth. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to bother somebody, you know, for goodness sakes, he was with his family at the aquarium. You know, you see people come up to celebrities when they're having dinner, when they're like eating, you know, can you imagine every time you went to go, I don't know, get a coffee or sit down to eat a burger, or have everybody trying to come up to you? I just think that'd be awful. So there's there's a weird thing with fandom, right? You feel familiar sure. with somebody that you don't really know, but you're, what you're really familiar with is their character, not their person. And so you feel you can, those can get confused. So you're going up to dinner and you're like, oh my gosh, this is Iron Man. Like, no, it's not Iron Man. This is a person who plays Iron Man. He's a family and he's at dinner with them and he probably just wants to be left alone. Um, and the funny thing is, is that's not just relegated to children. You know, adults will make that distinction that, you know, that mistake of confusing a performer with their their performance you know, or the well, character that they play. The, so Duny, the first time we met, because you have a very, uh, uh, you're very different from most people in that you, your charisma is, is, is overriding almost, right? Because you, and you can tell not, not in a bad way. I'm just saying that in the way of, uh, you just don't seem like the person who ever gets nervous. And I think from your story about being 15 and being called up in a, in a professional studio, uh, where you I mean, didn't seem like you were nervous then. And I don't, I mean, have you ever been nervous? I mean, do you, have you, Absolutely. as you've gone and progressed through stage acting, um, all the other types of things you've done with improv and, you know, in studio and voiceover, do you get nervous and how do you deal with that? Cause there's so many people who have such trouble doing that, being on stage or even speaking in front of a board meeting or a meeting yeah. at work. Right. Well, uh, it's funny. You should say that because, you know, I, I, I've, I've come to realize over the last couple of years, I'm, I'm a bit of, I'm, I'm, I'm like a negative, you know, to use a photography term. I know you're, you're, you're a big, uh, you're a big photography nut. Um, and not that, sorry, you're, you're actually, your work is fantastic. I don't Oh, thank you. Thank no, you, you're not a nut. You're not a hobbyist. No, you're, you're a photographer. Um, but I, yeah, I'm a bit of a, 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 the negative of that because there was a, there was a, a somebody, I think one of his ex-wives uh, said about Johnny Carson once that he was great in front of an audience of millions, terrible in a room of 10. Interesting. And yeah, my, uh, the biggest audience I've ever performed in front of, uh, was 2,500, uh, 2,500 people. And when I was at the aquarium, I would be in front of groups as small as 50, but that amphitheater could go as high as about 900 you know if it's all packed i think it's about eight but um so so you're the acting guy you're the you're the the performer the the stage 
person, the the dramatist, the the thespian, if you will, in high school, and you're progressing through. So the do- shed aquarium. First, so having growing up in Chicago for a while, that is a staple place um, on that museum row, right? I think it's uh, right next to. Well, it used to be next to Miggs Field before they tore it down. I right. think, right? But anyway, that's that's a that's an aviation story for another time. But um, so so, how did you get out of this town? Where did you go next? Uh, uh, prior to getting out of the town, something you wanted to know how things happen. Yeah, what yeah. The turning points are. Um, by the time I was a junior in high school, uh, I had realized I, I I was an Eagle Scout, and I made it to the rank of Eagle Scout and the Boy Scouts. For those who don't know, that's the highest rank you can get. Um, there's a lot of work that goes into that. And I, I made it all the way to Eagle with my father's foot firmly implanted in my ass. And um, by the time I was um, 17, yeah, 16, 17, uh, I was done. I was like, I made it to Eagle. I, I'm, I'm all scouted, camped out. And summer was coming and my dad said, what are you going to do this summer? And I said, well, I can tell you what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to summer camp. Yeah. And he said, well, you're not going to sit around all summer. And I said, no, I'll work. I'll get extra st- shifts at the radio station. And he said, well, aren't you going to do anything else? And I said, well, like what? And he said, what about camp? And I said, what did I just say? And he said, you know, there are other camps other than scout camp. Right. And I went, what? <laughs> I didn't know. And uh, he, I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, there's I'm, there's got to be other camps. Like, uh, I don't know. You like to cook. There's got to be cooking camp. And I'm sure there's a theater camp. And I went, hold up. What? Yeah. And I said, yeah, that sounds really good. So he said, all right, well, I'll look into it. So in 1995, my father, pre-internet, went on the phone and started looking up numbers. He called all the universities that he could reach in Illinois, asked to speak to somebody in the theater department, and said, I have a son, he's 16, and he wants to be an actor. What is the, what is the best summer program? for a young actor in, in Illinois that you can think of. And yeah. hands down, they all told him the Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, Illinois. And so he contacted the Steppenwolf and said, uh, I understand you have a summer program and for high school students. They said, yes. He said, all right, so what do you need? How much is it? And they said, well, there's an audition process. And he said, okay, fine. And he said, well, when are the auditions? And he said, where are they? And then the person on the other end of the line said, well, where are you? And he said, oh, well, I'm in central Illinois, which was about a two hour drive away. And the person said, oh, yeah, this is really more for people who live in the city and in the suburbs because, you know, it starts at like 8 a.m. It's Monday through Friday. You know, it's probably not for some someone who lives that far away. And that kind of got my dad's dander up. And he <laughs> just said, uh, we'll worry about that ourselves. How about you tell me when the audition is and what's needed? And so he did get the information and he plopped it in my lap. And I said, oh, uh, okay. So I prepped an audition and we drove up to Chicago and I auditioned at the Steppenwolf Theater on a Saturday. And my audition was abysmal. Tell um, me I, everything about it. I want <laughs> Well, the, the, the long and short of it is, is when you are doing community theater in a small town, if you don't have the wherewithal, the exposure and understanding, um, people play against their age range all the time in community theater. What does that mean? Oh, uh, well, you wouldn't have a, a, a 16 year old uh, playing a father to an adult. Oh, right. Woman. Just because you, know you don't saying? have as many people to 
Right. The, so when the you're pool doing, of people to choose yeah, from. Yeah, high school theater, children's theater, you know, whatever. You know, you can't be real picky about that. And so I chose an audition. Well, first of all, I chose a piece from a film, not from a play. And it was uh, a, a, a monologue that Jason Robards uh, gave in Something Wicked This Way Comes. So I'm basically playing an old, old man <laughs> talking about his son. You know, I'm like 15, you know, my balls have barely dropped. And <laughs> I go up there and do this audition. And I didn't know how to hold myself and do all these things. But they, they did see something there. So I was asked, you know, okay, uh, let's, let's, they tried to coach me through it. And then they just kind of scrapped it. And they said, tell you what, why don't you tell us, tell us a story, tell us something, tell us about the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to you. And I said, okay. And they said, well, we'll give you a couple of minutes to think of it. And I said, no, I, I, I've got it right now. And so I related this story to them. And when I was done, they were all laughing uh, pretty hard. And it was that, that, that story. It was being able to relate that story and tell the, relate what's going on and what was in my head and the circumstances and the just, you know, God awful embarrassment. And so I got the position and wow. they, yeah, they only had, I think it was 18, uh, 18 students, young people at the time. And, um, I ended up the summer of 1995. I had my own apartment at age 15 at Clark and just off of Clark and division on Elm street, um, just blocks from, from the lake. And oh my gosh. It was an efficiency. So that summer I was living alone. I was doing my dishes, buying groceries, doing laundry, and taking the L uh, up to um, up to the Steppenwolf uh, five days a week. If I could just back up just for a second, because I'm still impressed with how supportive your family was through this whole thing. Because if, you know, I, I could just imagine if I said, oh, I want to be an actor in my house. I'm like, right. No, <laughs> right. it's just, it's not that they wouldn't have been supportive if I really pushed for it. It's just, you know, both my, my parents are both physicians and we come from a family of scientists and engineers and things like that. Cause you know, I'm Asian. So no, I'm kidding. No, given, given the scope and craziness of Bollywood, we all know now that there's a, a large, if you want to call it acting, you can't, I don't know. This probably a, shouldn't, shouldn't be put in that category, but anyway, they would have been so unfamiliar with the whole thing. And the the pragmatic logistics of it also would have been terrifying to them. Like, how are you going to find a job? That's not a thing, blah, blah, blah. You know, And it seems like you didn't have that environment. As you said, you came from a family of storytellers. They were so supportive of it. Not always. And what's interesting is that at this point, uh, this actually plays into that situation. Because up till that point, you know, I'm now between my junior and senior i've got you know my next year is my senior year it's the summer uh, it's time to look at college you know are you going to go to college where you want to go what do you want to study you know what can you afford a lot of these things all play together and at that point there was um contention between myself and my parents that uh, i wanted to go to school and study acting and there would be kind of a, uh, yeah, okay, uh, could, yeah. Huh. And my mother would always say, uh, you know, well, what about journalism? And I say, what about journalism? <laughs> She'd say, but you're at the radio station. I'd say, uh, that would be broadcasting, not journalism, two very different things. No. 
and so this kind of back and forth was happening. And because there had been a big push for me to be, I, I think I, I can't get crawl inside my parents' head, but heads. But I think at the time, because there had been such a push for me to be an Eagle Scout, and because I had finally, um, where'd that push come from? Through, huh. well, um, my mother's uh, my mother's biological father passed when she was quite young. And uh, a few years later, my grandmother remarried. And so my grandfather, who was a, a doctor, he was an osteopath and a radiologist, um, raised her as his own and is always who I knew as grandfather. Um, but her biological father had been an Eagle Scout. And she had his, um, his Eagle badge, uh, which is, uh, it's, it's really beautiful. I mean, it's a silver eagle with wings spread, and it's a red, white, and blue, you know, ribbon that hangs down from a, a banner. It's a really beautiful thing. And she had always wanted to have that presented to her son. If she had a son, she wanted to have that presented to her son. And and also, you know, given some of the shortcomings and some of the problems that have faced the organization, you know, the Scout Scouting of America, formerly Boy Scouts of America, um, it's... It, they do a lot of good. They've done a lot of good. You know, there have been problems, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna badmouth yeah. the organization. It just it wasn't. I got a lot out of it. I'm very grateful for it, but it wasn't right. something that I was really interested in at the time. Um, as a result, you know, I, I used to say from like about age 20 on, you know, people say, "Hey, let's go camping." I'd say, "You have a good time," because <laughs> I got all that out of my system by age 18. My idea of roughing it is going to a Holiday Inn without a holodome. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. Um, so I think having m reached, met those expectations, there was a little leeway. And that's why they were willing to allow me to do this camp thing. Consequently, after having done that for the summer of 1995, coming out of it, there's a woman named Marianne Phoebus. Um, she was one of the instructors. She's an actress. Uh, she, gosh, I think I ran into her last spring. And uh, she was with her family. And I don't know, she might still be teaching. But anyway, uh, if you've ever seen the film Rudy. Yeah. The movie Rudy. She played Rudy's mother. No, we, I actually just saw that film two days yeah. ago. Yeah. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Well, the funny thing of it is, is my favorite, you'll remember this. One of my favorite scenes of, with her in it is, you know, Rudy comes home for the holidays. He didn't make the cut for like the umpteenth time. Right. He walks in the door. Everybody looks into his eyes and they just know it. They just know, oh, he didn't make it. But mom is in mom mode. And so yeah. she's running around the house and she's like, let me take your coat and do this. And oh, you need to eat, Rudy. <laughs> and she's the only one who doesn't get it. <laughs> That's Mary Ann Phoebus. Yeah, I remember that. I know exactly who you're talking about now. That's so interesting. It's totally yeah. random that I saw that movie just two days ago with uh, with <laughs> Catherine. Um, but because well, the of the... the... Oh. Sorry. No, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just saying at the very end, uh, uh, when he finally gets to, to dress and go out on the field, right? So his dad's so proud. And, and it, it, uh, she was like, where is he? Where is he? And the dad's like, right over there. Don't you see him? He's right there. He's so excited. Uh, just totally plays that part. But so, so yeah, how did she? Uh... Well, I bring her up because, yeah. um, you know, this, this program, which was over a number of weeks, at the end of it, they had, we had a, 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 a showcase. And it was for, you know, local talent scouts and for mostly, mostly for family. And uh, my family, my parents came up to see our, our, our showcase, our presentation. And afterwards, there was a little reception. And 
Marianne Thebus took my parents aside and she spoke to them. And to this day, I don't know entirely what she said to them. Huh. But from that point forward, there was absolutely no pushback. So this was hard. I mean, if I just focus on that summer, right? The Steppenwolf, how hard was it? Because you're around pros. I mean, everyone knows the Steppenwolf Theater. This is a this is well, the, I'm around I'm around other high school kids. Right. And they were all very sophisticated right. compared to me. Um, they were all uh wonderful, lovely people. Um, but they all, you know, even at, you know, high school age had a lot more experience. Um, it was difficult to me, but I feel like it's one of the times that I really rose to the challenge because this was everything that I'd wanted. This was everything I'd hoped for. This was freedom of expression, freedom to do as I pleased, freedom of maturity. You know, I've got to do my dishes. I've got to get groceries, you know, yeah. I got to do the laundry. I'm running out of underwear. And I did that. And also I'll, re I'll remind you, this was the summer of 1995 where it was so hot that people were dying. Yeah. And, uh, it was also the summer that they reopened Navy pier. I know that summer. Yeah. And, uh, it was just, it, it was, it was one of those, it was one of those bookmarks, one of those sort of hallmark uh, events, not Hallmark, like the call, the card company <laughs> highlights of my life that, that really shaped and changed who I ended up becoming. So that's a node in your, your life, right? Where, yeah. where you, do you still keep in contact with the other students and from that summer? Yes. There? Yeah. Uh, some of us are really quite close and, uh, just was, uh, texting with, uh, one of them who's now she's a performing actress. She's working, she's living in Brooklyn. Uh, she's spent some time in LA and she does stand up and a, she's, her name is, uh, Nahara, Nahara Nishal. Uh, yeah. And, uh, some people even left the country and went off to do other things and we still, we still keep in touch, but it was, it was that event and that experience plus the input from Marianne Thebus that allowed my parents to get over that idea that, you know, my mother was a teacher. She taught public yeah. school. She worked with, uh, children with, uh, um, uh, learning disabilities. And my father was, you know, a former air force man who was a CEO who worked with numbers and business. And, uh, yeah, my sister, she went in, she studied math and education. She's now a businesswoman. She's got so many things on her plate and she, you know, I, I really kind of diverged way off into left field, but, but yeah, I did have support. I did. It wasn't, there in the beginning readily, but it was, it was always given. It was always given. And so then now you've gotten better at your craft. You've made incredible friends, incredible mentors. They've been exposed to teachers also just lived the life. Uh, you skipped almost a year ahead, right? Bang, uh, in tech from, uh, it, as a high school student, um, uh, you, you were independent to the level like you, I was when I first got to college. You're coming back now into senior year and you're trying to choose what you want to do. So how did you, what was that choice like? What did you, what options were in front of you? Uh, well, um, it, it went from a choice of, of financial to looking at what schools had the program that I wanted to be a part of, but also those schools that wanted to have me because you had to audition to get in. 
And uh, I went, uh, oh gosh, what is it? It's either Memorial Day or Labor Day weekend. I can't remember which one it is, where they have the general auditions for all the theater uh, schools here in Chicago. And uh, they do it in the, um, oh gosh, uh, one of the hotels downtown, which is also where they have International Mr. Leather. <laughs> for the, uh, <laughs> that, that community. So you have all these bright, fresh-faced, you know, young thespian uh, wannabes and these people who have this lifestyle with, you know, the leather and um, uh, very, very open sexuality. And they're all just kind of meeting together in this one hotel uh, for one weekend, which is very funny. Um, I ended up going to those generals to audition. And I auditioned for Juilliard. They didn't want any part of me. Why, what was that like? Ah, uh, it was like a cattle call, uh, at least in 1996 it was. Um, yeah, I came in, they, they, they had us do a great big room exercise where there were, gosh, there must have been about 20, maybe 24 of us in the room. And, you know, do this, do that. Now move like the wind. Now you're a tree. You know, do all the, the, the sort of stereotypical uh, acting exercises. That and in, is that, I mean, to someone who's not an actor or has never been through that, is that normal? Is that just par for the course? Um I think for introductory level, yeah, I think it is. You want to see how people, if people are connected to their body, if people are conscientious of the way they move and things. And then, and then after they had this group audition and there's like a panel about four or five people all just kind of looking at us and making notes. And then they sent us all away and then they would have people in one at a time to come in and do their two contrasting monologues, um, which I did and eh. That's all right. I, you know, the, the odds of getting into Juilliard, you've got to, you've got to have a, a, a lot of things figured out and working up front and, and they really do take the best of the best. And so, yeah, I don't, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not ragging on them or anything. It's not like I just, I'm not surprised. I, I was very green and very raw at the time. But you um, must've had some gumption though, because I mean, you just got out of the Steppenwolf the summer before that was difficult and a very famous theater. Did you, so how did you, did well, you I mean, have I a loss of- for it? Right. You know, I mean, it was it was, right. it was it was something that was paid for. It wasn't like I was selected purely for based on talent. You know what I mean? It was it was. Right. I don't want to I don't want to oversell what it was. You know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I had I had dreams, I had aspirations, and I had a, there was a program at DePaul that I wanted to get into, and um, they have they have acting, which is like a studio program where you have to audition to get in, and then they have general theater studies, which is you study acting, but you also you basically spend equal amounts of time studying theater history, directing, lighting, sound design, set design, costuming, all sorts of things. And I knew that as much as those other aspects were interesting and I wanted to learn about them, that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to perform and that was it. Right. And so when I was not accepted in the performance program at uh, DePaul, but they were willing to offer me general theater study. So do you didn't see that as a big loss of confidence or something? I mean, because this, this is the one thing that uh, I did want to ask about this, this whole idea of rejection. And it's mm. such a common thing. Every single time you see an actor talk on TV about this, um, well, a stage actor, or whatever, like, Oh yeah, just get used to reject being rejected all the time. And that's something that I'm obviously not comfortable with. I mean, a lot of other jobs, you don't have that as part of the, 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 Things you have to go through that much. I mean, we all yeah. obviously apply for things. You know, I went to medical school. I, you know, got rejected through a bunch of them, uh, other colleges and stuff. But it just seems like this is just this part of being an actor. The job of being an actor could really 
cause a lot of emotional trauma, right? How do you deal with that? It's, uh, it's difficult. It really is. And you really, it's a challenge that needs to be met with, uh, equal parts. I think in, in order to maintain, uh, it needs to be met with equal parts, humility, and also, uh, with, uh, realism, uh, because if you audition for a play, let's say, and there's a role you want to, you want to play and you audition and they don't take you and you figure that that was like your best audition you've given, even you may know somebody who was there or somebody who's a part of it. And they're just like, that was awesome. You know, they let you know later or kind of on your way out or something and you don't end up getting it. And then you see the person that got it. Or, you know, you, you hear the person who got like a voiceover gig or something, but particularly with, with, with performance, um, they, they may have thought you were fantastic. They may have decided we really like this guy. However, we have already cast another person who mm -hmm. looks very similar, or it could be a question of height that they've already cast the ingenue or the person they're going to be opposite. And they decided that, you know, well, you know, this actress is, you know, of a certain height, we kind of need to have a guy who's taller because she's not going to be walking around in flats in this, in this performance, in the show. So there are so many things that could work against you that have little to nothing to do with your own abilities, skill, talent, that once you kind of accept that, that's so freeing. It's, it's so... <laughs> It, it sounds pessimistic, but there's 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 a there's there's a bit of grace in that, in understanding that oh yeah, it it doesn't mean that I'm not good. It doesn't mean that I'm not I did anything wrong. There's so many factors that are beyond your control. Yeah, they may already have a guy who looks just like you. That I, I said that already. But. And is that something? I mean, when you go to medical school and you're you're trying to choose what specialty. Medical, uh, the medical profession, as you know, because you've, you've been around it in your family, being a radiologist is so incredibly different from being an obstetrician, from everything from the science involved and the day-to-day, the -day, who you hang out with, the procedures you're doing, the room you sit in, right? They're almost like completely different, um, I mean, completely different unrelated professions, right? It's amazing that you can go through medical school, you learn some corpus of knowledge, and you get to branch out. At that point... Um, did you know that you wanted to do voiceover or improv or, or were you just like, I'm open to anything. I, you know, if you give me a part, I'll go try it out and do it. Or did you go, no, I wanted to be in film or on stage. I had ideas of where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do, but, um, I'm really glad you asked that because another sort of branching off something that really, uh, led me to where I am today is, uh, I had one particular professor, uh, his name is Rick Barrows. And uh, Rick, Rick taught on camera film. Uh, the, the program I went to at the University of Illinois was a studio program. And you had to audition to get in. And then at the end of your sophomore year, you had to re-audition to stay in the program. Huh. Yeah, there were, I think, 30 freshmen. And only nine of us ended up making it to graduation. What did the other people do? Changed a major. 
some went into theater studies or went into costume design or went into maybe even changed their major entirely or went to a different school. But that is so odd though. I mean, cause that doesn't happen. Like uh, if you're going to be a biology major, right? The whole point is you're there to learn it and they're trying to instruct you. I mean, isn't it weird to weed people out at such a cert, uh, early stage of training? I, I can see that argument, but I can also follow that up with the, the one not to change the subject back but yeah. rick who 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 helped shape my future he said the odds of you making it being successful being a big time actor are decimally small how small the well uh, the odds of you being able to support yourself as a performer are almost as small it's a very difficult way to make a living and i think that it's not any kind of snobbery or any kind of, you know, we only have time for the best, the best and the brightest, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a, a way of, of helping people not chase after something that isn't for them. Um, I, that's just my opinion. Yeah. I can't speak to, but I think that that particular program being is uh, kind of rarefied and, and, you know, you had to, if you missed one class, once you made it into the studio from sophomore year on, or even before that, if you missed one class, that's grounds for them to bring you in and talk to you about maybe changing your major or wow. not being in the program at all. Did you ever miss one class? Uh, eventually <laughs> there's a story for that. And that's how I met you. Really? Well, yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that in a second. Well, but anyway, so what happened with Rick is that yeah. Rick took me aside one day and he said, I know, uh, I, he kind of reiterated the thing about, you know, being able to support yourself as a performer, but he said, I think you need to look into voiceovers. And I didn't know what voiceovers were. You know, I just knew people did, you know, were the voices of, you know, the Smurfs and cartoons. And at that point, some video games. But I didn't know it as a career as a thing. And he said, you know, you have um, you have history and background working with uh, recording equipment, microphones. You worked in radio for four years prior to coming here. And he said, you have a voice and you know how to use it as an instrument. And he said, I really think you should look into it. And so upon graduating, there were a couple of things that kind of got in the way. Eventually in 2002, two years after graduating college, I came to Chicago with the goal of getting into voiceovers. Well, Dooney, that's, I just want to stop you for a second because I've never heard anyone say it like that. Uh, your voice as you, you know how to use your voice as an instrument. And that's, that is a very beautiful way uh, to talk about what voiceover actually is. It can be, you know, um, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, medicine as being this sort of very branched, you know, the difference between a gynecologist and, you know, a radiologist or an ER doctor. Um, the same to some extent can be said about voiceovers because there are people who are strictly doing character animation work, you know, uh, people who do animation like The Simpsons. There are people who do commercials. There are people who do uh, industrial work. There are people who do audiobooks, which is a form of performance in itself. There are also people who do um, things uh, that are kind of dry, you know, like doing um, like industrial work, you know, reading uh, readings of manuals. I, for a long time, uh, when the economy had a slowdown, um, I was doing somewhat well by just doing the audio components for big corporations 
where at the time you would have like a CD-ROM that you would have somebody put in their computer and they would watch this thing from HR and it was like, how not to commit sexual assault in the workplace <laughs> or, you know, how to get along with coworkers. And it's just this script that's, you know, reading, you know, it's like Eric and Benny have a problem. They have, you know, so it's this very straightforward stuff. But I mean, there's so many different ways and types of work that can be done. Some of it's oh, oh medical. Some of it's very clinical. Uh, I've done some, I've auditioned for some things where I've had to, oh, I just threw out one of them where I had to talk about this mesh that helps skin heal. Uh -huh. There's cytokines and all these different terms in there that were, you know, I had to go, wow, I got to go on YouTube and see how is this pronounced. <laughs> you know, it's got like six syllables and I'm like going like. At least that yeah. sounds complicated because I because I'm on the receiving end of something because you know in the waiting room in some of these clinics you have these videos right where patients are watching and they're like your heart is a pump blood comes in and it goes out there are four chambers and you know it's like you think like oh that's someone's job who's doing that right who has right. to create that content and that's not trivial no well and that that's directed at the patient so that's kind of at you know entry level you know level one stuff but then there are uh, conventions. And no there way. are, uh, you know, seminars and things that they have to have this voice that presents what's being trying to be understood. And so they have to get under the hood and do the nuts and bolts of it. And you have to be able to say all these things. <laughs> so when he said, oh, you know, voiceover is the path for you. Did you go, uh, you know what? Yes, that clicks. Or were you like, no, I don't know about this. Well, he didn't put it. He didn't put it as such that, like, I think this is the only chance you're going to be able to, you know, right. keep a roof over your head. He said that you need to be able to have something under your belt. And he always said this to all of us. You need to have something under your belt to fall back on and to pay the bills. Because even if you are working steadily or you're, you're performing, the kind of money that you might be making might not be enough. So you need to have something else. And for those who are good with their hands and tools, it might be, I have a friend named Mike, he's done films, you know, um, he lives here in Chicago, he and his wife did a feature film together, you can watch it on uh, Amazon Prime. What and is it? He, his thing, oh gosh, I'd have to look it up. I can't think of it off the top of my head. Uh, well, but anyway, um, his thing has, you know, he knows how to work tools, he knows how to build things. You know, you give him tools and, and the supplies and he can build a shelf, he can build, you know, whatever. And he used to do set building. Um, for I believe for theater, I know for film. And so while he is a, a, a very good performer, that ended up kind of becoming his thing. And so he was trying to instill in all of us, not saying you're not going to succeed, but you know, be, be realistic, be prepared, have something else and make sure it's something that you like to do, something that you can do well. Uh, one of the actresses that I went to school with, uh, Jessica, she uh, she ended up becoming a very uh, well-regarded uh, editor in film. And she's out in L.A. As, from what I remember, I think she's still doing that. Um, haven't had a chance to talk to her in a while. So anyway, so it was Rick Barrows. He was the one who, who really uh, started me on this path. And um, from that point forward, there was also uh, uh, one or two other people who kind of went, yeah, that is probably something you should look at doing. And that's how I ended up doing that. Now, as for the other thing as to how I met you, yeah, um, the four years that I was at the University of Illinois in that studio program were a very tumultuous four years. Uh, we had four different department heads in four years. Wow. There, it was a big time of change. 
And uh, I what was for, going on with the program? Did, why did that happen? Uh, as best I can tell, I mean, there was there was a husband and wife duo who were kind of like the Lunts, you know, the husband and wife performance team. The um, uh, the husband was the head of the department uh, prior to me joining uh, the school, and he was he and his wife were at an age where they were going to retire. And when he left, he left these huge shoes to fill. So one of the other professors stepped in temporarily from having uh, taught theater history to take over for a year. Then they brought in uh, somebody after that, and it came to light afterwards that that person was there as a bit of an ax man. Mm. And his purpose was to identify two people within the whole department, not just performance, but design and, and uh, set building and um, costuming and makeup and whatnot to owe tenure upon two of these people and everyone else who didn't have tenure was out huh. and replaced. And it was during that tumultuous time that, uh, you know, you had to audition to get in and your freshman year, you were not allowed to be in any productions as a performer. Why? The being, uh, well, the reason being, and I, I think this, this is a good idea is that You've just gone to college. You're on your own. It's a whole new world. You need to understand how to budget your time. You need to understand how to study. You still have to get your gen eds. Under, you know, you have to take right. those classes to graduate. It's not all theater. It's not all performance. And so by restricting you from having any performances your freshman year, that allows you to focus on what needs to be done. Because the other thing is, imagine you don't do your gen ed your first year or your second year. And then you don't make it into the rest of the program. Then where are you? Right. Right. So it makes sense. So there were this, this change over these four years. And it was when that person was in as kind of the ax man. Um, I was now in my first semester, my junior year of, of college. I'd made it into the program. And I was not cast in any of the productions that year. That, or that semester. Huh. How did you feel? I had not been cast. Uh, I felt I felt terrible. <laughs> I was mortified. And I still to this day, I don't know if it was because politically I was maybe backing the wrong horses. I really identified with the professors and the perform the teachers who who did um, not get tenure for the most part. Um, it also could have been an oversight. It is quite possible that it was just an oversight. And in retrospect, after that, they maybe just decided to not acknowledge that I hadn't been cast. But instead of getting upset, instead of getting mad, instead of tucking my tail between my legs, I kind of thumb my nose, well, I'll show them. And so in the one production through the theater department that semester, I went to the community college across town and I did three shows in one semester. Is that a lot? Leading, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> On top of a full uh, course of care. Uh, well, how did you do that? How? Uh, how did you budget well, your time? And how, how did I do that? Well, I was young. There was a lot of caffeine. Um, I had I had something to prove. And um, how did I do it? Well, I can tell you by the third show, not well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was burnt out by the time uh, performance number three came around. But I did it. And I was really pushing myself hard. I, I had something to prove. And around the time the end of that semester or somewhere not even the end it was sometime during that semester i remember it was around october um boy these things always happen in october for me uh it was a very unnaturally warm mid to late october and uh 
the theater building has this long hallway. Half of the building is submerged underground, and there's this big long hallway that's just gargantuan, so you can move giant set pieces through if you need to. And it ends in a ramp that goes outside where the semi-trucks for the traveling productions would come in and park. And they had the, um, the big doors open, and I could smell the, the, the breeze. I could see the sun, see everything, and it just looked so enticing. And we were from one course, one class for the AM, and we have to go around the stairs and around here and through here to get to the second one. And as we're passing by, and I looked at that open window, big open garage thing, and I was just standing there, and somebody said, hey, are you going to come? And I just turned, and I went. No, not today. And I just turned around and just started walking. And I huh. walked outside and I, my head was full of thoughts and emotions and I was questioning things and I was upset. And I did this weird thing in my head. I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to turn whichever direction I've never gone. This was the same school my sister went to for uh, three years prior to me uh, going there. So I knew a little bit of the town, uh, Champaign-Urbana. And I, I just, when I came to an intersection or something, if I had always gone left, I went right and so and so on and so forth until I was wandering around and I came face to face with this sign that said, uh, University of Illinois study abroad program. And I just looked at it and blinked and went, huh? And I walked in. <laughs> Are just, you serious? Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just walked in and we're talking, you know, late October, I guess. And I walked in and there are all the people who work in that office and they were all very casual and very relaxed because at this point, all of the people who wanted to study abroad had already done all their paperwork and done everything. They were yeah. just kind of waiting for the next semester. Right. And I walked in and I turned to the woman and I said, hi, I'd like to study abroad, please. <laughs> and she said, okay, great. So um, where are you looking to go? And I said, well, I don't know yet. And she said, so you're looking for next, uh, she said, you're looking for next year. And I said, no, I'm looking for next semester. And she went, <laughs> oh, and with that, she popped up and two other people kind of just perked up and they just started rushing to filing cabinets and grabbing these binders and saying, okay, uh, all right, here, 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 and here. They said, all right, these are all of the ones that you haven't missed the deadline for yet. And they just put all these binders with country names and schools on them on the table in front of me. <laughs> and, and I was like, okay, well, um, great. And I'm looking at all these countries and these locations. And I said, uh, well, I'm studying acting. And I said, to be honest, I, I'm not sure I want to have a language barrier. Yeah, I, yeah. I only speak English and I need to be able to perform. Like, oh, great. And they slide all these binders off to the side. And there's Ireland, um, England, and Australia. And I looked at it and I remember thinking to myself, well, if you're going to run away, go as far as you can. <laughs> so I said, let me look at the Australia one. And it was for Monash University in um, Wayland, yeah. Yeah, Victoria, uh, outside of Melbourne, Australia. Did and, you, you know, that's an interesting term you used. I mean, did you at the time see it as running away a little bit? You just needed a break? You know? Well, it, it occurred to me while I was standing outside the building and blinking at the sign that I could not take a sabbatical. I could not take a break because to take a year off or to do something or, I don't know, go faff around Europe with a backpack, that's not an option in this program. Right. If you're out, you're out. And I realized in that moment, that's the only way you can leave the program and still come back. Got it. So it kind of fit all, it checked all the, the boxes 
three where you can succeed. But before you even go into that, there's one thing that uh, I've always wondered about, and it's with actors specifically, because there seem to be these, well, there's multiple routes for sure, but especially for film, right? It's the struggling actor, screw the school, I'm going to just move myself to LA or something and just roll the dice. And did that ever occur to you to do? I mean, did you ever feel like, yeah, screw this. I don't care if I'm not going to get to Juilliard or or, the, or or program, or I'm just going to go try to grab an agent, get some, you know, get some headshots and go for it. No. Is that just a myth? Is that just a crazy thing that most sane people no. just don't do? I mean, I, I, I'll tell you this. It's not a myth. A lot of people do it. Not a lot of people succeed, but I can tell you of at least three people from that program not from my year but from uh, a year behind me and i believe the year behind that there are two prominent uh performers who went and did that they ended up leaving the program going out out west and one of them um had a sitcom on nbc he was a regular like a reoccurring role in er um he was in both barbershop movies uh he's uh he's he's god he's he's doing stuff right now i just saw him in a couple of commercials he's doing the, his name is parvesh china and uh yeah if you ever saw um uh barbershop he was the store owner in the first movie where the guy stole the atm and they were going to break into it and he's just laughing about it and they're like don't you care and he said there's no money in there <laughs> and if you've ever seen the skittles uh, not that this is the peak, but it's a very memorable one. You know those very bizarre Skittles commercials that they put out? Yeah. Ago? Yeah. So there's two guys who meet in a field, and one guy has a big bag of Skittles, and the other one has this big white rabbit, and the rabbit is singing. And the <laughs> rabbit is singing, like, in a human voice going, no, 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 no. And Parvesh is the one with the Skittles, and so they do a trade. He gives the bag of Skittles to the guy, and then he gets the rabbit, and the rabbit's singing, and he's petting the rabbit, and then it does a jump cut to him at night. It's raining outside, and he looks like he hasn't slept in about five days, and the rabbit is still singing. <laughs> <laughs> and he's looking at the guy with the Skittles like, oh, I wish I still had the Skittles. That's just And that's on tape for the rest of eternity <laughs> it's fantastic because it's not just a fun weird commercial i mean he sells it he sells that remorse he doesn't have any lines he doesn't say a thing anyway he's a he's a he's a beautiful human being he i i care for him greatly and i love seeing him succeed were you tempted to do that honestly no and i think if anything that's maybe one of the things that you know they say if you could go back to your younger self yeah if you could you know uh, the only, the closest thing I think I may have to any kind of regret is anything where I maybe exercise a little extra caution, um, or held myself back. Let's, let's say that where I held myself back from doing something because I wasn't sure I was ready or I did, you know, I, it, I've taken risks. Absolutely. And many of them have paid off, um, when you when you think back, I mean, just having this conversation is you took a lot of risks. You walked in at 14 into a radio station and said, hey, you know, I want to do this. You walked in, you saw a sign and went and studied abroad. So it doesn't seem like you you took a very conservative take or have a conservative attitude at all, right? It seems like you're a pretty good risk taker. Or are you, are you surprised by some of the decisions you've made looking back on it? 
Oh, I'm certainly surprised by them. I, I'm grateful for those. I think, I think maybe on some level, a part of me was sort of like, okay, you, you, you know, it's like it's like the mouse that that steals the cheese out of the mouse trap and gets away with it, and goes, yeah. well, I got the cheese, and then does it again, and goes, yeah, I got the cheese. Instead of going, yeah, I can get the cheese out of that mouse trap, it's going like, well, I got away with it twice. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to get away with that again, and I don't know if that. I mean, it's the only thing that comes to mind. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very grateful for what I have and where I'm at, and uh, I find the work gratifying, and I want to do more. And that's what I, I so twenty years later, right? Since we first met in Australia, right now, what is your craft? What are you really good at? Uh, I think I'm competent. I'm good at, 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 at voiceovers. I'm good at being able to deliver what's needed when it's asked of me. Um, the next challenge, what I really want to move forward with, which I think I'm good at, but I haven't pushed myself to do is, uh, is to incorporate the storytelling because with the voiceovers, it's taking somebody else's material and bringing mm. it to life. Um, you mean you want to get into the writing part of it, like the creation? To an extent, but more in storytelling. Tell me, what's what's the difference? Well, I mean, it, the difference between doing right. voiceovers and doing the, the, the storytelling. No, the writing and storytelling, yeah. Or what do you mean when you say storytelling? Okay. Uh, are you familiar with an organization called The Moth? No. Okay. The Moth is a an entity they have a show a radio show and a podcast and it's it's a venue for professional storytellers to get up in front of an audience and tell a story okay and these stories have to be true so these are people relating true very personal stories that they experience themselves and i have uh listened to the podcasts and i think there's even a video component i think one of the paid channels like hbo or um, Cinemax or Stars or something. They may even. I think they have a vi um, a filmed version. And I'd like to. I'd like to. Basically, it comes back to Garrison Keillor. I'd like to get up in front of a crowd and do the storytelling myself. There is a. Uh, there was um, a smaller version of that here in Chicago that uh, last year um, I I was part of and I got up and I and I did one. And I was, I had, had to, to go rework it. I think it went well. I'm really proud of it. Um, I have all, uh, my good friend, Rob, uh, did like a three camera shoot <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, audio, you know, did the separate audio capture. And I've been meaning to, um, splice and edit that all together in a finished product. Um, what do you love about storytelling? Uh, are you still, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, are you still as passionate about it as you were 20 years ago when you first started? And what have you learned about yourself? Well, what I really love about it is I feel like it's a very pure art form. Uh, you know, what, the earliest, you know, prior to technological advances, the, the earliest form of entertainment of, you know, getting, getting ideas across from this uh, electric meat yeah. receptacle to another <laughs> electric powered meat receptacle is to use, I'm, paraphrasing this this short story somebody wrote this you know i'm using the electricity in my meat suit 
to flap the meat together and force air through it <laughs> to take complex ideas. It is true when you think about yeah. it. And to push it through the air to vibrate in the in the ear of that other meat suit and then get into their brain. Um, I mean, that's where it started. That's where it's always started. And uh, from, you know, people sitting around fires and, and explaining things to one another. Um, to me, that's that's primal and that's base. I've never been very well connected to my body. But someone else who is, who's a, a dancer, might say otherwise. It might say that the physical movement of dance and, and interpretation and doing that, that may be their thing. So I'm not negating anybody else's experience. It's just what I have. So being able to um, to reach somebody else and to make them think, to make them laugh, to make them cry, to understand what it's like inside somebody else's um, meat suit, as it were. Um, yeah, I think that's it. And what have I learned? Uh, I've, I've learned to get out of my own way. That a lot of times when you think you're being clever or you think you need to embellish or do this or do that, you don't. The editing process, particularly what I did last year with that, that performance um, here in Chicago, I, it, they have a very, I think it has to be like, it's not even five minutes. I think it has to be like under three minutes. Uh -huh. And that doesn't seem like a lot of time. And it isn't <laughs> yeah. until you, you have, cause you have to also submit it in writing. So it's not this extemporaneous off the cup thing. So I had to really winnow down and go, okay, well, what details are important and what aren't. And this particular story I had already um, written as a, uh, Somebody dreaming. I, she a dream. actually is. Yeah, Zoe. Sorry, sorry. No, Start over. Uh, no. The particular yeah, story that you'd written. Oh yeah, is that I'd written this uh, this this story that I told many times. I'd written it out in in story format before. I'd even developed it into a two person scene uh, for the stage. But once it was going to be told just as a story in this format, I realized I had to cut certain things out and and made it into a very lean very i think probably even a more powerful piece by doing that so i think the editing getting out you know not trying to be clever and um learning the editing it seems like as an actor you're just in this incredible position to observe the human condition Right. In some ways, uh, I think, you know, I feel that way too, sometimes as a physician, just because you, you, you can't choose who walks in the door. So you get this cross section of humanity and, uh, you, you know, me, I've always been the kind of person who just want to do every job. Right. So there's someone who's like uh, an electrical engineer. I'm like, oh, I want to do that. Or if someone's, uh, I want to try, I just want to see what it's like, even for a day to experience these other professions. It's just, the innate curiosity in me. Uh, and so being a physician is just one way where you can do that. Uh, harder in some ways in medicine, like a radiologist is going to have a harder time doing that. But if you're a primary care physician or an ER doc, it's like the full spectrum of humanity is just in one 12 hour shift, you're going to see it. The crazies, the normal people, the every emotion, every, you know, the, um, do you need the hospital is such a weird place because in one room on one end, 
people are dying. But in the same building on the other end, people are being born. It's like this whole spectrum. And I feel like you like, actors probably see that too a little bit, don't you? I mean, so what have you learned or what surprised you about just people? Because you guys are in some ways like the ultimate people watchers. Uh, I, when I worked at the uh, aquarium, you know, we get 2.2 huh. million visitors annually. And you would see people from all over, not just the city, but the state or even the world. You know, people are visiting from all over. And you do see that slice of humanity. It is, like you said, it's just anyone and everyone. Uh, I, think, I think what surprised me is when people... It's easy to get caught up in when people are behaving in ways that you don't want to see, you know, when people are being boorish or people are being rude or inconsiderate. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you just, depending on where you're at, you know, emotionally and where you're at, I don't spiritually or wherever you're at in that moment, that day, that hour, that week, you may be prone to seeing one thing over another, but what has surprised me is when people have been um, kind of showing a state of grace or when people have been very open huh. in times and situations when you would never expect it. I have to just relate that back just because we are living in such a strange time right now, right? Where mm -hmm. uh, with the COVID pandemic and have you noticed is everything that people have been doing or expressing, you know, the crazy runs to the bank or to, uh, to the grocery store, uh, you know, are these instincts that people have? All the weird politics—is this—is anything surprised you, or is this, or is this, are these things as an actor you've seen before in either different roles or um, uh, experiences working with other actors or audiences? I don't know. I think I think it's a it's a it's a time of great insecurity, and when on so many levels, financially, personally, uh, spiritually, your own health, uh, the health of your loved ones. I think when people, I, I think I, I'm not going to speak for other people. I'm going to speak for myself. When, when you, when you find yourself in times of insecurity, you want to go to what's safe. You want to go to what you can understand and you can wrap your head around and to those things that are comfortable. Um, those things that you have been able to um, to find joy in in the past. And some of those things are not accessible, given the current situation. Um, right. And so I think people are trying, you know, I did not partake in panic buying, but right around the time when everybody was looking for toilet paper, I ran out. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm going to go buy some toilet paper. I'm going to try and find it. And I'm not going to buy any more than I normally would. And so, you know, I, I yeah. kind of had to go to a few different places. And this is pre-masks and, and, and whatnot. Um, and I was able to actually find a package. And there were two packages. And a guy came up. I was in the, the CVS, you know, the, the uh, drugstore there, the convenience store. And the guy came up. And we both were looking at him. And I just looked at him. And I said, I was there already. And I went and I grabbed one. And he was looking at it. And I just said, you can go ahead and grab that. I'm not going to get it. And he was just staring at it really hard. And he looked at me and he just said, I don't know if I need it. 
<laughs> and I looked at him and I said, well, if it helps, I, I live alone. This is good for me, you know? And he just looked at me and he said, I have, I have two daughters at home and my wife. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I need it. And I just looked at him and I shrugged and I went, wouldn't hurt. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, and I had this honest moment with this guy and he just, yeah. I, I, I don't think we would have ever spoken. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's another thing. Having grown up in a small town and the way that you kind of relate to each other. And again, when I was in, when I was in that town, there were no cell phones. Yeah. There was this, the flip, the StarTAC. Right. You know, I, I had love that phone, by the way. That's still the best phone I've ever owned. Oh, you could run a tractor trailer over that thing. <laughs> it would still work. But, you know, I don't know what it's like today because I only go back briefly to visit my folks and they're snowbirds. They're in Florida right now. And, um, you know, do people still talk and relate to each other? Or is it kind of like around here where it's just sort of, you know, you're staring at the phone wherever you're at? Yeah, um, that's a that's a weird thing because, you know, uh, I was telling this to a friend the other day. You know, Amazon has these new stores that they were going to test out before COVID where you just walk in and you walk out and uses AI and machine learning in your phone. And you just, you don't, there's no checkout. You just grab the stuff hmm. off the shelf. And you walk out and they have these, you know, really slick commercials and everything where this person in New York City is walking in and they go and grab it and they just, it's like, hey, there's no lines. And I think that's a horrible idea. I'm just like, why do we need that, right? I mean, it's just one more way where we're using technology, just just my opinion, but using technology to drive each other more apart, right? So Absolutely. what's really funny to me to see this, especially in, in the uh, grocery store, is uh, with, you know, without COVID, we're all standing one foot away from each other, not talking, staring at our phones. And now that we are uh, in this pandemic situation where we're doing social distancing, we're six feet away from each other and we're all staring at each other and not looking at our phones, looking like, this is awkward, isn't it? Like, I wish someone was a little closer to me. It's it's so weird. I think lessons to be learned for sure um, when the dust settles from this whole thing. This, this, I think this is a game changer. This is going to change so many things on, on ways in ways that people don't understand yet. Uh, I think socially it's going to change a lot. Um, the way people relate to one another, um, the way people interact. I mean, we're not out of the woods yet. You know, this could end up becoming, I read an article that it's potential that this yeah. could be something that could be cyclical that happens, you know, seasonally once a year. Yeah, well, and in, and how is it impacting your profession? Because it's it's uh, I can see it happening both ways, right? Because there are less opportunities for people to go to movie theaters. Are are you seeing a difference there? Well, uh, for clarification, I'm not an on camera guy. I've done a little bit of stuff. I'm really more of a stage and then the voiceover stuff. Uh, for stage, it's been absolutely crippling. Um, there's just no way in the current environment. Right. And for the near foreseeable future, that, that, that that's going to be even feasible. Um, is it a boon? Is it going to help? Um, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Um, you know, I, you can see because there's a video component. I'm sitting in a booth right now. I have my own professional recording booth that's soundproof. You can have a jackhammer outside my window and you wouldn't hear it in here. And I made this considerable investment a few years ago. I have, you know, my compression mic and I have everything all set up here to do this work. And one of the things I never did was um, actually like the program you and I are using right now is that the high quality audio over the internet to connect from one studio to another. Right. 
And it's one of those things, you know, we talked about, you know, regrets and maybe I should strike while the iron's hot or maybe I was a little hesitant. I wish I had done this sooner to set this kind of thing up. And right now it's starting where I get most of my voiceover gigs all, you know, 99.9% .9 of them all come from my agents. And one of the agencies just had one that came through yesterday that said, uh, this is only for people who can use a source connect type program to connect via their studio. And um, yeah, I mean, the time is now for that sort of thing. The whole goal for this was to, to do audiobooks. That's my, that's my midterm immediate goal is to get into audiobooks. Why? Uh, a couple of reasons. One, it's storytelling. It may not be my own story, but it is a way of, of telling stories. Um, there was an audiobook that uh, was read, uh, uh, narrated by uh, Blair Underwood. I can't remember which one it was. And Blair Underwood, I don't know if you know who he is, um, but he was in L.A. Law and he's done a lot of work okay. since then. Um, anyway, I remember listening to this audiobook he did probably, I must have been back in like 96, 95, and I heard it. And I, I was mesmerized at how he could differentiate between seven or more different characters, some of which were female. And it was just through a slight lilt in the voice or a change in pacing or whatever that I'm not hearing, you know, like Monty Python. We're like, oh, yes, I'm a lady. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was still a man's voice. But with that slight inflection, it just dissolved. You know, I had that um, uh, suspension of disbelief where I was like, oh, yeah, that's her. You know, it's not, it's not, I'm not going, well, which female character is that? No, I mean, in context or even out of context, I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's so-and-so. And that's, I, I want to be able to do. And also from a practical standpoint, that type of work is probably going to be a lot more, in my opinion, um, once you get into it, once you get it going, it's, it's available. It's steadier work. It may not pay like doing animation or like doing, you know, um, national radio ads, which I've got a couple out right now. Really? Yeah. But it's sort of, you know, you go in, you put in your time, you do your work, and the work is always there. Have you done work with other people in the studio uh, along with you, like uh, like animation? What's that like? Uh, no, I've not. Well, I've done, an, uh, well, not, have I done animation? No, I mean, I did, I just did a video game not too long ago, but it was solo work. Um, it was for uh, a video game. I'm not going to go into the details of it because I don't want to, uh, but it's the kind of game that if a kid went to Chuck E. Cheese and they played it, they get the tickets. Yeah. To, yeah. You know, to get a little spider ring or whatever. They <laughs> the the uh, $10 spider ring. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> um, and, you know, and that was very, you know, focused character work, kind of broad, you know, over the top. And I loved that. I love that, but I would love to be able to do something along the lines of like a, um, oh, what does Nathan Fillion do? Um, oh gosh, I can't think of the name of it. It's almost like a modern day Indiana Jones. There's like four video games under these epic stories with, you know, I think it's Call of Duty or something like that. Or yeah, I, that's the war one. Uh, the, oh, it's, he's a thief. Oh, fooey. I can't think of the name right now. It'll come to me. Um, I'm tempted to look it up, but <laughs> Dooney, is there then is there a book that you're just dying to read? And I want a, a follow up question to that is: uh, is there any body of work that you've seen, stage, film, or voiceover, uh, where you saw it, or listened to it, uh, experienced it, and said, "Damn, I could do so much better than that performance." 
Uh, let's see. Is there something I've seen where I thought I could do better? Uh, like, oh, if I just had a shot at that. Well, I mean, I, I will say, I kind of hearkening back to earlier when you, occasionally you'll hear something on like satellite radio or uh, usually it's not on, on broadcast radio. I mean, I'm one of the few people who still listens to that, I guess. But, you know, you'll hear an, uh, a commercial where it might be, you know, where they where the owner has decided they're going to do the commercial themselves, whether it's on TV or, you know, um, audio for radio or Internet where, you know, it's like, so come on down to Bob's recliners. Uh, we've got a deal for you. <laughs> there was an episode of Better Call Saul when he was trying to sell his airtime and there was the guy in the lazy boy chair and he was really trying to get a performance out of this guy. And he's like, you're talking to your friend. Just look in that camera. And that's your that's your buddy, Ed. That's your buddy. You're just having time. And the guy's like, yeah, okay, yeah. And I was literally on the edge of my seat going, he's got to get it. He's got to get it. And the guy was like, so come on down to our chair store. We've got it deal for you <laughs> it's just like oh well do you, you know it's funny do you have directors directing you or do you have oh, to yeah. get into that when you're no, doing your stuff now do you have to get into that role yourself uh and how do you do well, you that gotta, you, you gotta come with with a, with a pocket full of things you gotta come with a pocket full of ideas you gotta come um as best you can sometimes you don't get a, a look at the script beforehand so you gotta you gotta come prepared you gotta have uh whatever you can uh you know You've got to have some ideas. You've got to be willing to let go of those ideas. One of the things that I've I've learned over um, I learned over the four years that I was in school, and I've learned since then is that you know when somebody's trying to learn the craft of performance, whatever that performance may be, many times raw talent can be eclipsed by the ability to receive and accept direction. Because you may have this raw talent, this great ability to do X, Y, and Z. However, if what you're doing is not what is needed, you know, we're talking about having other people, you know, other characters, other performers, uh, an overreaching arc. You know, it's not about you. And unless you are, you know, uh, gosh, I don't know, the main character or whatever, it's a one-man show or anything like that. It's not about you. And there, the director will have some sort of idea of how to make this all work. And you have to, you have to give over that ego. You have to let go of, because you may have an idea that you think is just dynamite, that you think is great. And you have to be able to let go and accept and I've in the four years that I was there, I'd seen performers who started out and it was like, wow, that person is fantastic. And then somebody else and you're like, OK, well, you know, th there's there's some room to grow there. And at the end of that four year period, the person who's fantastic is about as fantastic as they were when they walked in the door. Yeah. But the other person has grown so much noticeably. And, oh, and not just that they went from like from here to here. It's that they were able to surpass anything that the first person was able to provide or to perform to do. And so being able to let go of ego and to be open to ideas and suggestions and change, I think that's a big thing. Well, you, you've talked about uh, the difference uh, and you've mentioned a few names. It's obviously made a huge difference in your career and how you thought about the craft and it were inspirational and motivating. Have you thought about being the one giving that instruction, going back to teach and have students? Um, a little bit. I've, I've kind of begged off and 
I, the thing that's kept me from going there is that obviously without naming names I'll just put it this way the best the best instructors teachers in anything I'd ever had whether it was you know learning pottery or glass blowing or uh singing acting whatever it is are teachers because they really really enjoy being able to open up something in their students to provide something for them a, a, a way to learn and grow in how to do what it is they're doing the worst <laughs> examples of instructors i've had uh i can even go back to high school are the instructors who are doing it because well i guess i could do this that there wasn't that inherent uh passion to teach i mean my mother was an educator she taught for over 35 years and she was just as motivated and passionate about providing what she could for her students in her last year as she was when I first, you know, was conscientious of what she did and, and why she did it and how she did it. Um, I don't know that I'm at that point. And the reason being is that when it comes to performance, the instructors that I've had, I'm going to be really diplomatic about this. <laughs> the instructors that I've had that left the least amount of, I learned the least, I, I, I'll just say this, the ones that I learned, sometimes you can learn by people showing you what to do, and sometimes you can learn by people showing you what not to do. And the ones who showed me by showing me what not to do and be from an educational standpoint were the ones who had something to prove. And I think what they had to prove was, well, I'm, I may be performing or I may be teaching, but you know, I could be doing this professionally and then them letting you know that because their own ego gets in the way. And so to answer your question, five minutes later, uh, <laughs> no, that's okay. this is interesting. Sorry. but to answer your question, I think that I would like to, I'd like to reach certain levels within my career there's certain things that I'd like to accomplish before I would feel comfortable a telling anybody else or helping them find their path and b being able to set aside what I'm doing, trying to do accomplish professionally to help someone else. Yeah. I, think that makes I would a lot like to have, I'd like to have the experience. I'd like to be able to, you know, know what I'm talking about on a personal level, as opposed to just a conceptual level, but also I want to be able to have that, I mean, I guess it's pride. I want to be able to be to, you know, have that hanging on the wall in my mind to say, I did that. I did that so that I can go. And now it's time for me to, to help somebody else do that. And despite all you've accomplished so far, you still don't feel like you've got that thing on the wall yet that you want. I mean, there are lots of, there are lots of things on that wall. I, I feel like there's one or two things that I'd like to accomplish before I, I, I would feel comfortable moving on. So the short answer is yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. What, what? I mean, you, you, you can't leave it like that. You got to tell us now. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, this has gotten personal. Uh, and that's fine. Um, 
I want to, I, I would really like to be able to, I want to have a couple of audiobooks under my belt. I want to have some actual acting done in a video game, in something, in animation and or in a video game that has a through line that's a character. It's not just, you know, a squawking head telling you to do A, B, yeah. or C so you can win the game, you know. Don't get me wrong. I love the one that I did uh, a couple months ago. But, yeah. Um, and I, I, you could argue, make the argument that, well, you can teach and do the other stuff at the same time. But, you know, I've, I've done some teaching. Uh, I've been a substitute teacher, and I've done some intensive uh, educational things outside of uh, public schools. And I guess I would want to live up to the same standards that my mom set and some of the better educators that I've had in my life before I would step up to do the same. But one thing I was thinking about, um, you know, there was one, there's one time, I think we were in Washington, D.C. for a meeting. I was like, uh, I don't know, almost nine years ago now. And there was a, the chief medical officer of one of these startup companies, because I'm more in the tech world. I don't practice, right? So um, he was just an amazing person, very charismatic and just very empathetic toward people, which is always a good sign when you see a physician who's like that. And so we got to talking and I was just like fascinated by his background. And he had went to um, uh, magician school before medical school, that's what he wanted to do. And I said, why did you, I mean, did you not, did it not work out where you wanted to be a stage performer for magic? He goes, no, 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 I just want to learn more about people and how people perceive things before going to medical school. And I was like, wow, that isn't, what a great uh, attitude perspective to have, a very wise choice, um, that uncommon, unorthodox one. But if we scale that back a little bit, I wonder if things like, acting classes in acting should be made more available and accessible to people who might not have had that same drive early like you did right so the scientists in the world could be better storytellers right so the physicians could be better with their patients what do you think about that i i i agree i mean obviously i'm biased but um i think that not only from just a communication standpoint being able to express yourself and be understood um but also i think from being able to have that that ability to look at other people and put yourself in their in their position to put yourself in their shoes because i mean there's there's people watching where you look at mannerisms and the way they carry themselves or the way they walk or the way they you know you know touch their face or whatever it don't do that uh, yeah. don't touch your face but whatever it is that they do that's an exterior clue but once you do um you have to do script and a character analysis you know looking at a script and motivations and trying to figure things out i think that i would hope that people would be a little more empathetic by being able to look at another person in their situation and to reflect upon that. You know, my mother, there was a, there was a, a seminar that my mom went to um, about understanding um, socioeconomic class here in the United States. And um, there, you know, if you say there's, you know, upper class, middle class, and, you know, lower class, I don't want to say lower, but I don't know what the term is, but just for brevity, we'll just say upper, middle, and lower class. And when discussing food, let's say you're a guest in their home 
and they feed you a meal. Yeah. That uh, someone who is of lower class, when the meal is completed or what they would ask is they'd say, did you get enough? And the same question, type of question at the end of the meal in middle class would say, how did it taste? And in the upper class, the question would be, how was the presentation? Very interesting. Yeah. And there are three, I wish, oh, this woman who led the seminar, this uh, Ruby something, I can't think of her name, but um, that was something that my mother learned related to us here in the family. And it just stuck with me, this idea that, you know, here are three different needs, concerns, concerning uh, uh, related to the consumption of food. Yeah. The context matters, doesn't it? Absolutely. And that sort of thing, you know, if somebody said, uh, you know, you, 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 you know, you had people over, or people had you over and they were just like, oh, how, you know, how did they ask you one of those three questions? Those are three very different. They come from different places. Yeah. And it's not that one matters more than the other or, you know, one is kinder than the other. They're all it, it just has to do with where those people are coming from. Um, I had a, a particularly eye-opening experience once where um, I had a friend who uh, I, was, I was doing some performance work and there were a lot of people from all over the country who had come to, to work at this place. And uh, um, it was not too far from where my family was going to be getting together for Thanksgiving. And there were a number of holiday orphans and I was told by my family, hey, if you've got one or two people that don't have anybody to be with for Thanksgiving, bring them on over. I said, great. And so I, I had one person took me up on it. It was this guy. And uh, we, we went there and we sat down. And, you know, the way things in my family were, what well, are, is, you know, before the meal, you might have a cocktail or a glass of wine. And then there's, you know, there's little things to nibble on, you know, some that, you know, cut snacks or, or like yeah. snacks, cheese and crackers, you know, crudite, whatever it is. So you have a little snack here and there or whatever. And then you sit down to the meal and with the meal, you might have a glass of wine or you might have, you know, a refill on your cocktail. And then after the meal, you know, the long meal, with all the talking and storytelling and remembrances and all the, you know, the family type yeah. of activities after the meal with the dessert, you might have a, a, a little cup of coffee or something, or you might have uh, uh, one last, you know, cocktail or a little aperitif, you know, a little something, a little porter, whatever it is, you know, a little alcoholic drink. A glass of sherry. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. Well, we got there and my friend who was there, he, we walked in and he had a beer and that beer was gone pretty quickly. And then somebody offered him a drink. And so he had another beer and then he had a couple more while we were having the meal and it was just kind of, oh, okay. And then <laughs> afterwards, after the meal and everything, uh, he, he, he had another beer and I'm just sitting there going like, well, I'm glad I'm driving. And, uh, <laughs> and, and afterwards at one point, um, a family member kind of leaned over and said, I think your friend has had a, had a few drinks. And I just said, yeah, well, it's okay. And then afterwards, as we left, my friend turned to me <laughs> as we're leaving and he just said, man, your family drinks a lot. <laughs> And I, I said, what? And he said, yeah, oh my God, everybody was drinking. And I said, oh, okay. And I didn't really think anything of it at the time. And then 
the next day I said, you know, are, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I just, boy, your family drinks an awful lot. I said, well, you had a few too. He <laughs> said, yeah, but well, and he said, but, but we don't drink before or during the meal. I said, oh, you don't? And he said, no, no. He says, that's done after the meal. And I've since spoke to some people who understand socioeconomic things and it's said that some in some in some instances people will, you know, have like a cocktail or a couple of drinks and then that's it. And in some instances, the drinking is the activity. Yeah. It's what it's it's weird how there are different things that bring people together. And being Indian, trust me, our customs which uh, uh, are are so different in so many ways in that way because it's like the guys go to one room, the girls go to another room. This happens. This is the weirdest custom. But then all the guys are drinking. The girls are never drinking. Uh, it's yeah, that all age groups. It's a it's a very weird just norm. You know, if you go to an Indian household, that's a normal thing. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but um, it's no, I haven't. It's it's funny. I'd love to. Well, you well the first thing you should come out to California. Where we are, um, you know, I, I know we not can't too long ago. Yeah, I was, it's... I was out there for a convention. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. A few months ago, uh, I had been flirting with going to a voiceover convention in L.A. And it's one of those things where I told you about being cautious. I kept telling myself, well, I should go to the convention when I'm a little more established. I should go. No, that's ridiculous. Just go. I yeah, know. you should well, just I finally, go. I finally did. And, and what I was, was it like? In Studio City. It was, oh, my God, it was amazing. It was it was something that I I'm so glad I did. I can say I wish I'd done it sooner, but it doesn't matter. I I I found it when I needed it. And what's interesting is um, I think earlier on you asked like how things happen and how do you make things work. And I think you know preparing and planning and doing everything you can to make things happen is one part. Um, there's a quote. It's something about like luck is when preparation meets opportunity. I'd probably paraphrase. I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, 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 you know, I was trying to be careful with my my finances, you know, to to not spend too much money. And I was like, well, if I'm going to go out there, I need to find an inexpensive place to stay. So I ended up at an Airbnb. And I was like, I think a mile and a half from where the convention was, which was in Studio City. Uh, the Hilton or whatever, right by there. And a mile and a half in Chicago is very different from a mile and a half <laughs> in Los Angeles. Yeah. Because I didn't rent a car. Right. And I was walking. Wow. Uh, going, you know, down a big hill and then up a big hill. Is that over? Uh, is that one of your first times in LA? It was my very first time in LA, not including the layover on my way to Australia. Well, that is weird. I mean, just it, it's so uh, different from the stereotypical actor story, right? Yeah. The opportunity meets, you know, preparation yeah. thing is that I, I was uh, late on the first on the, the morning of the convention. Um, I flew in on Friday and I, you know, got situated in my place and then uh, walked and got some food and went back to my little my little Airbnb. And then the next day I had everything plotted out on Google maps on my phone that I was going to walk. And it took so long to get there that I missed the first seminar in the convention, which was the one seminar that I was oh. really interested in going to. So I ended up being like 45 minutes late and, and I ended up taking like a tram from universal studios to kind of get to the hotel and everything. Yeah. Else. And it's so when I got there, I was, I was, I was frustrated, but I thought, you know what? Just stop and think for a second. 
don't get frustrated. Try to find an advantage in this. And I realized that everybody was in the convention hall or the seminar watching and listening to the people speak. Meanwhile, all of the exhibitors and the retailers were outside of there and no one was there. And I thought, okay, so I'm going to sacrifice by not getting the last, you know, 40 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever of this thing. I'm just going to go and talk to the exhibitors. And so I ended up going up to each one of them and talking with them and having some really great one-on-one uh, -on -one experiences. And I got, I got some advice. I made some connections. Um, uh, I ended up speaking to this one woman. We were talking about, they had little baggies of um, candies that they were kind of handing out with the business card and everything. And uh, long story short, I'm speaking with this woman about the candies and about how wonderful everything is. And the next thing I know, I say, oh, is this your booth? Is this your, she says, no, it's my husband. And, uh, and she said, oh, here he is. And I turned around and this wall of a man, <laughs> this gigantic <laughs> man, he, no, no. I mean, he was just tall and just broad and everything. And he had a voice like this. <laughs> I said, oh, hi. And I, I shook his hand and, uh, and we spoke a little bit and he asked me about my demo and where I was at in my profession. And, um, anyway, fast forward to the next day, the next evening when they had, basically it's like the Academy Awards for voiceovers. I paid extra to go to the, to go to the award ceremony. I wore a suit and a tie and you know, oh, that's so cool. And it was just this red carpet event and walk the carpet and everything. And like, I am nowhere near where these people are at in their careers, but I thought, why not? You know, it was an extra, you know, and did you know these people? I mean, you could recognize who they were just there in that, in that microcosm. Oh, some of them, some yeah. of them. Yeah. I mean, there were a couple of people who were like, you know, Titans of, 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 of the industry. And, you know, um, Ving Rhames was going to get the lifetime achievement award. He couldn't make it unfortunately, but you know, cause Ving Rhames with that beautiful voice of his, and, yeah. um, there were some other people, you know, there's, um, Oh gosh, Jim Cummings, uh, you know, who does the voice of Winnie the Pooh and Darkwing Duck and everything you can think of. Um, you know, he was there at the seminars and everything. But anyway, but the point is, is that fast forward, you know, a day and a half later, I'm sitting in there, you know, watching this whole thing unfold and the gentleman who I met the wall of a man swept the awards really oh my gosh I he must have walked away with the, the awards in a freaking wheelbarrow I mean he was up for so many and he won so many of them wow. and it was just funny that I met this guy and then there was another um uh I, there's a company that does audiobooks and I had really kind of been sheepish about getting into it. And it's something I wanted to do. And I was like, well, I need to make sure that I'm, I have my, all my ducks in a row. I don't want to be unprofessional. And I spoke with a woman there and uh, she started to talk to me and she said, okay, she said, here's what you need to do. And she started to really give me this wonderful pep talk. And she really hammered home the thing. The one thing that I w would go back in time and tell my younger self is perfection is the, uh, is the enemy of the good that if you're so worried about not making a mistake, you're never going to get anything done. So you think you overthink it or you used to overthink oh, it a lot more. I used to, and I still do, but I'm better than I used to be. And I think if you can say that, then you're doing something right. Well, I'd like making to progress. Well, I've got, first of all, this entire session has just been such a treat for me because I just don't get oh. access to this kind of insight about things. And, and it's oh. so incredible. You've been so incredibly generous with your time to oh, do this. I mean, you, you 
you you asked all the right questions. Like, right. Well, that's well, that's what I was going to ask you. And so that it's 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 about that whole thing of taking notes, right, and feedback. And it's it's weird because I'm not a person who gets very nervous or anything like that in in front of crowds. I've never had a problem. I'm a pretty good speaker, if I may be so bold. And uh, when it comes to on stage uh, speaking at uh, or lecturing or conferences, or I'm talking about artificial intelligence or medicine and technology or whatever it is, or with patients, I'm really good at that. But this is new to me. This podcasting thing. Uh, and it's weird to hear my voice in this way uh, because I'm usually the one talking. So what advice would you have for me? How could I improve? In what way? Just to be better as a host. Oh gosh. Um, I would say, I would, I would say you're already doing, I'm not, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass. I'm just saying that everything you're doing, I think is, is, is great. Um, hold on. Um, <laughs> I think don't forget how, how interested and excited you are to learn more about what's going on. Because, you know, it's funny. I mentioned Johnny Carson earlier. I'm going to make it briefly about myself. When I was little, the first thing I wanted to be was a fire engine. I wanted to be big and red and loud. But after that, um, I wanted to be Johnny Carson. I wanted to be a talk show host. And I held on to that for a long time. And there's still a little part of me that kind of wants to to do something like that. Um, It's very easy to make fun of Larry King because Larry King kind of plays a parody of himself. And uh, I don't know if you're aware, but Larry King never does research on any of his guests. Yeah, I am. I actually have his book. Okay. I think he's, yeah. Yeah. It's a great one, but he's onto something in, in some respect in that if you are curious and you want to know more then anybody listening to you is going to feel the same. And so I think I as long it. as you retain being open to to seeing where things go which this has been you know this has been fantastic this has been natural this is like you know yeah, sitting just down just and catching talking up with a friend yeah 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 we should do this more often i mean uh, there's a whole another podcast just from uh the our australia trip because i remember so many times you getting mad at me there i remember one time in particular that that just does that story deserve you want to talk about storytelling that story deserves to be told if you want to see dooney mad my goodness do you remember the time i poured the oh you don't remember this do you I don't know. Tell me. I'm- oh, okay. We're in the outback. We're in the outback. It was, I think, just about six p.m. or so. We just come back from seeing Ayers Rock. There yeah. was a group of a, a cadre of all of our friends. We were just delighted, and we're now pitching tents. And I think, actually, let's be honest, we weren't the ones pitching them. I think the people we paid to take us on that trip out there were doing all the work, and we yeah. were um, we were glamping. Yeah, yeah, we were glamping, and it was amazing. It was it was a great. Uh, it was such a great time, uh, mm-hmm. and a real treat to be there. Someone had convinced me to eat that. Uh, can- Grew tail and I didn't know they were actually playing a joke on me and I actually tried it was horrible do you remember that and the oh, next I morning yeah it was abysmal it was horrible yeah why would yeah, you it was yeah gamey as hell yeah and then so the next morning we were trying to get rid of all the all the trash right you don't remember this do you and no. they were like ants all over the outback as there are ants actually everywhere in everyone's lawn but just we're, they're we're very noticeable and very big and looked very mean um yeah. and so I had a bag of sugar like granulated sugar and you were like okay you're not going to throw that out are you and I'm like, yeah, but it, I'm just going to pour it out here. And you're like, but it's not natural. But I'm like, how much more natural could it be? It's sugar. 
I was like literally ready to take a piece of paper and draw out the chemistry. And you're like, you better not. And you were standing about a foot away from me. And you had this look on your face like you, you had better not. Like you were just like, don't you dare. And I was like slowly unzipping the thing. You don't remember this. I'm and you're like, it's to. not natural. You're contaminating this beautiful landscape that doesn't even belong to us. And I just go... <laughs> <laughs> and the look and you were just like you heathen i mean you 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 i it, i was cracking up but you were oh really angry i thought it was hilarious i was like do you realize this sugar is going to be gone in 30 seconds by you know 9000 legged insects that are coming going to come right. and consume it but you know i just thought it was funny it's one of these things that stands out oh, to me oh it's hilarious it's absolutely hilarious the only thing i can think of i there's two factors that may play into this i mean obviously you're right it was it was oh no who no it doesn't matter i mean i, I could no, 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 no. maybe i'm right maybe i'm wrong i don't know no 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 but but here's here's where i'm coming from there were two things going on in that time one i don't know if you remember i'd throw my back out yeah and I had, thank God, one of the guys there had done lots of physical therapy and was studying that himself. And he was able to help me get into a position and do stuff because, yeah, I, I, had, I had basically thrown my back out coughing or sneezing or something. Yeah, because you <laughs> – I know exactly why you did because you coughed really hard because you almost died on that macadamia nut or something. Yeah, well, that was, that was when we went to uh, Great Keppel Island. Oh, okay. <laughs> so there, that was – that's a different thing. Yeah, that's – yeah, I almost died basically because of a hazelnut. Hazelnut. It was a hazelnut, yeah. But, but but the other thing that happened was, if you recall, what a tombstone trip. Died by hazelnut. <laughs> yeah, everybody leaves little jars of Nutella by my tombstone. <laughs> um, just thinking about Charles. Uh, no, the other thing that happened was during that trip, uh, we were given the opportunity to climb uh, Ayers Rock, or that's Ayers, right, or not. Right, And I would say 95% of the people on that trip decided to climb. And there was about 5% of the people who chose not to. There was that older husband and wife. That's right. Older. They're probably our age now, but they seemed older. And, um, and they were adamant that they weren't going to do it because it was not appropriate. Yeah. And I was on the fence. And I was trying to decide whether or not I wanted to actually climb this sacred place for, you know, the Kuri, the native people. Yeah. And eventually I decided to climb it. But as I did it, I ended up taking about four rows, rolls of film all the way up and all the way back. I documented the whole thing because we uh -huh. had been told that later that year, it ended up being a couple years later. Since then, nobody climbs it. It is closed to the public. It yeah. is a sacred place for the Uluru and their elders. Their their you know people that they designate are the only yeah. people who can climb that. So I thought, well, I'm documenting it. Yeah, yeah, might so as I, well. I'm, yeah, so I was like, I'm going to do this, and I'm glad I did, and I still have all those photos. I think I was feeling particularly guilty about my choice because, as you said, we're 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 we're, <laughs> we're breaking guests. up camp and we're heading yeah. home, and yeah. and I probably was uh uh what is it projecting oh um because i had felt uh, a bit of shame over my decision and that's probably why i was so rough on you oh no you weren't rough i just thought it was funny i'll tell you why i climbed it you want to know why i climbed it oh no i was only rough because of the sugar that's no no i know saying. no i know i'm i'm saying i'm saying you know why i climbed it though because no, the, the day before paul and i got into the largest aviation accident in alice springs history remember I mean, we crashed 
in a hot air balloon full of Japanese screaming tourists with a pilot whose first name was Scooter. Remember that? I just remember. Oh, I, mean, I remember. I, I was in the chase vehicle and it was a coin flip. It because... was then me and you, Paul won the coin flip because there was the one right at dawn. Yeah. And there yeah. was the one after the sun had risen. And we all wanted to be at the one at dawn. And you had set everything up. So you got yours of the of the two slots left for the three yeah. of us. You got the first one. And then it was between me and Paul. Coin flip. I lost. We, I have a picture that is, I would say, seven seconds before the crash. And it's one of the most beautifully framed, incredible pictures. And I'll send it to you. you showing, uh, yeah, please do. because, And I'll show you the ones that I took. And then I, I actually took one of them framed. Because just – oh, I'd love to see that, by the way. But I, I remember just taking that picture. And uh, you know, it wasn't digital camera, so I, didn't, I, did, I couldn't see on a screen oh, yeah. like what it was. It was prohibitive, 19 – Digital cameras were yeah. prohibitively expensive. And yeah. Phil had like the only one. Remember that two megapixel thing, which I still have the pictures from, by the way. I'll send you a mm-hmm. picture of you. I, I was just looking at it, doing some research and seeing what I had. But in oh, any Lord. case, so we're at the leading edge in a wicker basket. Just rule number, you know, Ravi's rule number 420, never fly in anything that's made of wicker. Or just, just general, you know, nothing from Pier 1 imports should have anything to do with aviation. And that's coming from a pilot, right? So it's like, so I'm in this wicker box and I'm looking to the side and Scooter, Scooter, the the, the balloonist, ballooner, balloon pilot uh, is just having, he just starts having a seizure. And I'm like, huh? I look over. Wait. Like literally? No, 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 not no. But oh, he's, oh, just he's just frantic. Just, he's just oh, frantic, okay, he's and frantic, yeah. now all of a sudden, like handles and things. It's like the scene from, um, it's like the scene from uh, uh, Indiana Jones: The Last Crusade. You know, when they when they detach from the dirigible uh, and uh, they're trying to escape the Nazi planes. He's like, Dad, get on the gun! It's right there, ten o'clock. And he's like, What are you talking about? Yeah, it's only nine. <laughs> and it's it's you know, it's like no. And it was like, it was just frantic like that. And I'm like, what is he doing? And now he looks worried. And then we start going down, right? So we're descending because I'm looking at the altimeter, right? Mm -hmm. And um, at that point, I'd never, I mean, I'd flown a plane with a friend, but I I was like one of these dorky sim flight guys, right? Like had the little setup and, you know, this in in the house growing up. So uh, I would play Microsoft flights. So I knew all the instruments and all that stuff, like all the physics of it. So then um, he goes, all right. Everybody, hang on, we're going down. And then Paul, who, you know, our friend Paul is a six foot four. You know, he's a very tall, very stoic guy, right? You know, Paul doesn't right. say and, much. Well, and you're, you're, you're no, you know, uh, yeah, little flower yourself. You're, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a very elegant way to say it. But yeah, I'm so, so we're, we're sitting there, and I just remember looking at Paul after I put the camera away, and I was like, we're going down quick. Like this is this doesn't seem like is the movies and and, mm-hmm. and Paul I look over like Paul and Paul looks over at me and we just start we started going down into the wicker cubby hole like this and just hanging on and I don't know what it looked like from from you um, from the chase vehicle but it, that was that was um, hilariously I mean I'm glad no one got seriously hurt but right um, let me so, give you the other side the other yeah, the other perspective please do remember this distinctly we're in the chase vehicle which is this white panel van. And we are uh, trying to go where you guys are going. And I can hear the guy who's driving, who's the other, you know, uh, yeah. what, what was his name? What was the guy's name? Uh, Scooter. Scooter. So Scooter's, Scooter's, you know, number two. Uh, Scooter is trying to drive through these equivalent to like dirt paths, you know, right. 
in the desert, you know, you could probably run about, you know, big circles, 200 meters around, and you could be one of the first people to ever set foot, you yeah. know, in, in that area in a hundred years, if ever, you know, we're so remote anyway. And so he's trying to struggle to find a way to get to where you guys are at. And so he actually turns away from the balloon to find a road to turn, to get to where you guys are at, because uh -huh. there was some like a, a line of scrub brush or something, and there was no road to get there. So he was going to have to kind of circumnavigate and go around. I turn and look out the back and I see the balloon going down. <laughs> the time he got the car turned around and was looking again, I see the balloon down again. Now this wasn't a glitch in the main. You guys had fucking. We bounced. You came down. We bounced impact. seven times. Seven. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So and we went somewhere through. It was either between one and two or between like, you know, four and three. I saw the balloon go down again. I remember looking and going like, wait, I already saw this. And you guys were mid bounce. Well, it's and it's it, it's you're in a wicker basket with no cushioning, no landing gear. Right. It's a box. But the other thing right. you have to remember, though, is it's there's a full on furnace next to you. Right. It's full of fuel. <laughs> and so it's like I this whole you. thing is just a bad idea. Right. I mean, it just I have not stepped foot and I will never go into a balloon again. And I have flown <laughs> lots of planes. I am checked out in many types of aircraft. I have a couple hours in helicopters and I've. I've I feel very comfortable in flying airplanes, being passengers, but, oh my gosh, no, that was, so I'm, I'm glad, uh, you know, you lucked out. I mean, I'm glad you didn't get hurt. I'm glad we didn't get hurt. I, they refunded our money. But so the next day when they were like, do you want to climb Mary's Rock? I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. I'm climbing freaking do everything. Life's short, babe. Like I'm going to climb the damn rock. Um, wow. I so, did not realize that that was, or maybe that was that day. That was the dawn thing. But, um, I do have one last question for you because I know you well enough to know your favorite, one of your favorite fictional characters. And given that your voiceover work and the person who plays that character pretty well, in my opinion, um, the Joker, Mark Hamill. Yeah. Do you, yay or nay? <laughs> yay or nay? Yay or nay. Oh, it's not even a question. Uh, he, he embodies it. Here's the thing. Not only has Mark Hamill in, embodied it from, you know, the Bruce Timm uh, Batman the Animated Series that came out in the early 90s. Subsequently gone on to voice it in that series, in the Arkham video game series, because another actor took a point, but also Justice League Unlimited, the uh, sort of more children-friendly um, uh, DC Ends show, and uh, also some uh, video that were a lot dark uh they did do the killing the uh, uh, uh cinematic release yeah the killing joke you know the chiller um alan moore story for the joker so he's not only played the joker but he's played five maybe more subtle variances joker um, yeah and he's, and he's and he's done them differently and he's not only the, the 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 dc um <clears throat> i think it's dc kids i'm not sure if that's the but he's actually he also does the voice of uh swamp thing the the trickster i think it is is one of the flash villains as well as the joker and there's a there's a really fun where um uh the joker and the trickster kidnap famous actor mark 
to ransom him for money in in little animated short and so he's getting to flex his muscles and of course you know swamp thing shows up so he's doing four voices simultaneously in this thing but oh, no okay. i mean yay or nay there's there's no question <laughs> i just uh, wanted to hear it from you because you're the expert so i i just wanted to make sure it wasn't just a weird fanboy thing from my side no um, not at all well dunes listen we got to do this again and catch up and um well listen where can people find you I and mean, how do they get a hold of you either for work or just to see what you've done or uh, are you on, on social media or do you have a website a website um i try to keep social media just to to friends i don't have a public uh, persona uh social media website uh, but, uh, but just a straight website um the the name of the website once i get it up and running hopefully later this month is uh, voicecharles.com wait say so that one more time your website is uh, uh voiceofcharles.com got it voiceofcharles.com not anything up there currently <laughs> <laughs> uh it's uh yeah it's I'm, I'm working on it this is kind of the first foray for me into developing a website so i'm learning yeah to um uh, examples of my work uh not only the voiceover but the storytelling so yeah awesome 